0: The book of Acts, which is where we've been, is, you know, this this unfolding of the story of the church. And we're coming to this part. If if you remember a few, back when I taught a few books back, and, you know, in in, in chapter 6, they set aside these seven guys to help out. And two of them were Stephen and Philip. And then chapter 7 begins to tell the story of Stephen, who ends up giving his life for the faith. It was a pivotal moment because after that moment, (sighs) persecution began in the church. It just just began by the Jews, not the Romans, the Jews. We're going to see that in just a minute. And so there's focus on Stephen and his death. And then in chapter 8, we're going to see there's the focus on Philip. So there's the focus on Stephen and Philip. Now, I've told you before, the book of Acts really is about two guys, Peter and Paul. But it doesn't mean that there aren't other people that are important. They bridge gaps. They they do things that matter. Stephen and Philip are two of those guys. And with with this transition kind of that's going to come from Peter to Paul, we're going to see some of that today. These two guys, Stephen and Philip, do something really important. They kind of become the catalyst to the fulfillment of Acts 1.8, because Acts 1.8 says this, Jesus says, in his departing words, the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world. Now, they've done Jerusalem and sort of Judea. They haven't really got Samaria and the rest of the world, and they're about to do that. And interesting, it isn't Peter or even Paul that per se begins that movement. Really, it's Stephen and Philip. After Stephen's death, verse 1, chapter 8, Saul was in hearty agreement putting him to death. There was a guy there, a guy named Saul. He was a Pharisee. He was really talented. He was really good at being a Pharisee. He studied under this guy named Gamaliel. We kind of already seen him earlier. Gamaliel was this brilliant Jewish scholar whose grandfather, Hillel, was one of the two most influential people in the life of of the Jewish people at the time of Christ. And he had lived earlier than that. He was dead. But his influence was felt continually in the life of Jerusalem, in the life of the Jews. And, and, And Paul studied under this guy. But Paul had a zeal. Paul had a fire. Paul had a love and a longing of God, but it was misplaced. And his passion for God became a passion against Jesus. He agreed with the martyrdom of Stephen. He wanted that to happen. And it says on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So they began to scatter. Now, most likely this persecution was against Hellenized Jews. So in the Jewish world, we saw this in chapter 6, when there was this dispute that began among feeding the widows, that the Greek-speaking widows, who were Jewish Christians, felt they were getting, not getting the proper proportion of help compared to the Hebrew Christian widows. And so the seven guys set aside were all Greek-speaking. We call them Hellenized, Hellenistic, of the Greek world and culture. Stephen was one of those guys. And when Stephen got up to speak on behalf of Christ, and not the Jewish believers, but the Jews put him to death, they began to take their antagonism out on the, Jew, the, the, the Christians who had come from of Hellenized world. They were were Jews, but they were the Greek culture Jewish Christians. And so they're the ones who began to scatter. That's why the Hebraic Jewish Christians, like the apostles, didn't have to scatter. They weren't going after those guys. But it tells us at this moment, here's what it says. They began to go to Judea and Samaria. In other words, they began to spread out. Verse two says some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation of him. They cried and wept over his death. And then notice verse three. But Saul began ravaging the church. It means destroying the church. He entered house after house, dragging off men and women and he would put them in prison. And later on, we know that he had them even put to death. Don't you get this picture? Paul, not the Romans. Paul, under the authority of the Jewish ruling council, who had enough of all these Christians, decided to go after the Hellenistic, the Greek-cultured Christians. He goes from house to house to house to drag them away, put them in jail. For this reason, most of those Greek-speaking Christians who had come from other areas of the world left And they went back home, which is sort of how the gospel began first to spread to different parts of the world. They would go back and they would go to their fellow Jews, wherever they lived, who were Hellenized as well. And they began to share Jesus. And that's how probably you had the church start in Rome, how that began, particularly in other places. This process began. And it's important that we understand that Paul, known as Saul, was leading this movement he was at the front of it. Now, it's hard for me to imagine this because I can't even imagine being torn away from my faith. But I mean, you, you think this is in Jerusalem? This is in the area where they worship God. These aren't pagans. These aren't Canaanites in the Old Testament. These aren't Romans. These are God's people, the Jews who are persecuting other Jews. The difference is Jesus. These are the Hellenites, the Greek Jews. This is the beginning of persecution. You know, by the way, in about 30 years, the brother of Jesus, James, would be killed and put to death by these same types of people. They would eventually turn on the Jewish Helena, the the, the Hebraic Christians who were Jewish. They eventually turned on them. You need to understand that the Jews in Jerusalem systematically and categorically rejected Christ. Early on, Christianity was Jewish, and I've shared so many times with you, it began to move more and more and more to Gentile. When I preach Sunday, I'm preaching on Matthew, and I'll make the comment that Matthew wrote in and around 60 AD, he understood that Christianity was becoming so Gentile that the Jews had rejected Jesus. And he wrote the Gospels, a last-ditch effort in some respects, to get them to believe. This is an important thing because there was a complete rejection by them. So we need to understand, this is the beginning of that movement, and it didn't come from the Romans, it comes from the Jews. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Notice what happened. They left, but they were preaching. They were scattered, but they were preaching the gospel. And now you have introduced words. We're starting to see words introduced that speak about the, the, the evangelization of the gospel of, of Jesus. There There's some beautiful words in the Greek language that speak about uh, preaching which is to, to bring a message, You which is to preach the good news. They began to share. They began to preach. And everywhere they went, they preached Jesus. I was listening this morning. I didn't get a chance to hear Joe's sermon when he preached. And I was listening to his message today. And uh, one of the things he did, and a point that he brought out uh, that I thought, he brought well, and all the guys, they all preached great messages while I was gone. I enjoyed all of them. Three of them really did a good job. And uh, there was a four somewhere, but no, they all four did a great job. And it's good to be able to have guys you can have confidence in that they will do a good job. And I remember, but Joe was talking about we share Jesus above all else. That's, that's Everything is that. The church exists for the propagation of the gospel. That's an old line statement. That's an old time saying, the church exists to preach Jesus. I hear all sorts of reasons why the church exists. And I'm like, the church exists to preach Jesus. The church does not exist to teach you. We do teach you. It's important. That's not our primary responsibility. The church's primary responsibility in their new ministry. Ministry is important. It's not our primary responsibility. This is the thing. When all is said and done, and we all one day face Jesus, there's only one thing Jesus wants to know. Only one. Did you trust me? If the answer is no, nothing else matters. If the single most important thing in all of life that matters when we face him in death or in the judgment is whether or not we trust him, it stands to reason that the single most important thing we can ever do is trust him. And once we trust him, the single most important thing we can ever do is help the people we love and know and those we don't know and even those we don't love to trust him. That's what they did. They went out and shared Jesus. Now, there are people who disagree with that. Okay. You tell me what it is we're supposed to do and you find the scripture to support it. And if you can do that, good for you. I'm just telling you that is clear in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. They went about preaching. Philip, he left also. This is not Philip the Apostle. We don't know anything about Philip the Apostle. We know a little bit in John. That's it. We know a lot more about this guy. He's the evangelist. He went down to the city of Samaria And what did he begin doing? Proclaiming Christ to them. He went to the Samaritans. Jesus said, you're going to go to the Samaritans. Philip wasn't necessarily a part of that when he said that, but he understood it. The Samaritans were a unique group. They were kind of, I don't like saying happy, but they were a mixture. In 1000 AD, give or take a day, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, Actually, about 940, I guess, 940 AD, 940 BC, Rehoboam the son of Solomon had rebelled. I mean, he was king, and Jeroboam rebelled against him. And somewhere around 940 BC, give or take, you know, whatever, the northern 10 tribes split away from Judah and Benjamin. And those northern 10 tribes never worshiped God completely, they were always apostate. The Assyrians eventually defeated them in 722. And when they defeated them, they left the poor and the downtrodden there, and they took everybody else away, either killed them or took them off into slavery. And they brought a bunch of new people, and they put them there in their place. And they intermarried, and they became what's called the Samaritans. In time, they became worshipers of Yahweh, of God. But it was always a little bit different than the way the Jews did, and that's not what's important. What's important is the Jews... Never fully embraced him. There was always conflict. You see that in John chapter 4, the story of the woman of the well. He's a Samaritan. In in February, I'm going to preach a couple of messages from there. You see this conflict. It was so bad that they wouldn't even travel through Samaria as a rule. They wouldn't go that way. And so there there was just animosity and hatred. And what happened? He went there. And the crowds, with one accord, were given the attention to what was said by Philip as they get this, heard and saw signs which he performed. So not only they hear, Philip did other things. He performed signs. Early in the life of the church, one of the authenticating characteristics of the apostles and people like Philip and the early preachers was that they did miraculous signs. That, that, that's ended now. But remember, they didn't, they didn't all have the Holy Spirit. They, they, every time a, a, a new group comes to Jesus, They have to go introduce the Holy Spirit. That was was unique to those times in Acts. It happens about three or four times. It's unique. From now on out, everybody who gets Jesus gets the Holy Spirit. You don't have Jesus. So Jesus was a whole new thing to the Samaritans. you know. And so they needed something to authenticate it. Jesus did that. Jesus authenticated all the time by signs and things. He didn't like doing it. He said, I shouldn't have to do this, but you demand it. You don't know otherwise, so he did these things. And so the apostles did them, Peter did it, Paul did it, and here's Philip's doing these things. And we read some of the things that began to happen. In the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. There were all these people who were afflicted, and he began to minister to them. Now, the importance isn't, The miracles, the importance is the purpose of the ministry. What was the purpose of the ministry? It was to demonstrate demonstrate the authenticity of Christ. It was, first of all, to demonstrate that Jesus was legitimate. Secondly, it was an act of love. Not everyone who was healed or touched would always believe, but it was an act of love. I know when, um, I think Michael preached about the 10 lepers, and Jesus healed 10 lepers. One came back to thank you, one, but he healed all of them. We do ministry for two reasons primarily. One is an act of love on our part, and two is an act of authentic Christian life. People experience our ministry in the name of Jesus, and hopefully they will come to Christ. That there are certain ministries we're a part of, certain things we support. All of you need to be involved in ministry. You don't have to come through here. There's a lot of great ministries out there that are faith-based. You know, there are things that I support and that I give money to. I can't give my time to, I give my money to. Above and beyond my tithe, which always comes here, more than the tithe comes here, then extra money I'll give to that. And, and the purpose of ministry is, it's because I love and care about people. I love and care about kids and through compassion. So I, I support compassion international. I love and care about people who don't have clean water. I support charity water. I love and care about people who are facing persecution. I face international, I, I, so I support groups like International Justice Mission who also deals with you know, slavery and all that stuff. I, I care about those things. I can't do anything about it, I give them money. And in the hope and the process that they also come to Jesus. There are a lot of organizations in this town that we support and are a part of, and you can't. The reason we do ministry, the reason that I'll go visit someone in the hospital, I'll have a book at a call. someone will say, hey, can someone from the church come visit this person in the hospital, and somebody will go. And the reason we go is because of love and compassion, but also because that's the sort of thing that Christians do. And if they don't know Jesus, maybe at that point they'll come to Christ. Ministry is not the end of itself. Ministry is the means to a greater end. It, is, it means the end is their spiritual salvation. There's nothing wrong with that. Ministry is not to make me feel good about myself. Ministry is not for me to be able to tell people I do this or that. Ministry is so that I may show love to people who need love. And ultimately, so that that person, if, you're not, if they're not a follower of Jesus, may become a follower of Jesus. I want them to follow Christ. And so that's why, part of the reason we do ministry, and that's exactly what happens. These miracles, it's ministry. Philip was good at it. In verse 8 says, there was a whole lot of rejoicing in that city. People were so excited. Why? Lives were changed, and the Messiah had come. They were hearing about Jesus. And then an unusual story happens, and we're not going to finish the story of this guy now. We're going to finish it next week. But there was a man named Simon. Simon was a very common name. You see lots of Simons. This was a guy named Simon. He formerly was practicing magic in the city. And he was astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. So in other words, you had he was doing the miraculous things too. I don't know if he was healing people, but he was doing things. He was involved in the magic arts. He was someone who was in opposition at this time in his life to God. The Old Testament, it said people who did the things he did should be put to death. Because not only were they rebelling against God and sin, but they were actively pursuing a course of antagonism and in opposition to God that would lead people away from God. It's one thing if you don't follow God. It's another thing if you lead other people away from following God. And that's what he was doing. And he was involved in all of this. And they all, from the smallest and greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. In other words, about the time Philip had come, this guy had been around. They said, this is the great power of God. They said, there's something about this guy. And they kind of attributed what he was doing to God. Remember, the Samaritans were not pagans. They were worshipers of God. They didn't necessarily worship him correctly, but the Jews weren't either for that matter. And they thought this guy and all his magic arts that he was doing whatever he did, that he somehow had the power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished him with his magic card. So they were giving him attention, which probably means they gave him some money. I mean, at the end of the day, you do stuff like that. Attention's fine, but money's better, right? If If you're going to be working in opposition to God, at the end of the day, you want something for it. And he wanted something for it. And we'll see that more next week. But when they believed Philip, when the people believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. So Philip was preaching, and people quit listening to Simon. And they began to listen to Philip because Philip wasn't just doing spectacular, magical things. He was healing, and he was showing love, and he was casting out demons, And he was making a difference in their lives and their lives were being changed. Listen, the authentic message of Jesus always changes lives. I never worry about some false teaching, some false group, some false whatever, because when all is said and done, if I'm bringing the authentic Jesus to people, Jesus always wins out. He always wins out. If he didn't win out, Christianity wouldn't be here. He won out against persecution in the time of the church. Went out against the Romans, wins out all over the world today. I mean, the place that is losing faith are the Christian nations, you know, in Europe and America. We're the ones losing because we're corrupting it. But where the authentic Jesus is taught, like China and India and in Muslim countries, Jesus always wins. But if you take the gospel of Jesus and you corrupt it, And you take moral relativism and you put it in there. And you start saying, well, there's other ways to get to God. And, well, we don't want to offend this group of people and we need to change this. And when the church starts doing that, the church starts dying. That's why denominations are dying. Even our own denomination, Southern Baptists, we're not guilty of that. But you know what we're guilty of? Southern Baptists are guilty of focusing on us, on our purity. Listen, (laughs) if you want a pure faith... Leave. Just go, just leave, because you're, you're going to mess it up. I guarantee you, if I thought, if, if Southern Baptists need to have purity of thought and action, they don't need to have me as a pastor of one of the churches. Now, fortunately, they don't have a say in it. That says it up to you. But, you know, we are throwing people out because we don't like some of their preachers. Because, you know, they're women and all. I'm not thrilled about having women be my pastor, but I don't want anybody to be my pastor. I like me as my pastor, so I don't really care one one or the other. That's people all the time say, so what do you think about female pastors? So what do I care? They're not going to be my pastor. You know, I don't care. I'm, but what I'm saying is this. We have become so caught up in things that don't matter. That's what happens. All of, throughout the world, especially in places where Christians are being persecuted, Man, they're growing. Because it's authentic. And that's exactly what was happening. And so they began to believe. And get this, even Simon then believed himself. And after being baptized, get this, he continued on with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. I'm going to stop there. Because it sounds really good. Until we get to the next few words. We'll see it next week. But I want you to understand... Philip gave all of the impression and the signs. He was the father of Jesus. Man, he made a profession of faith. And Philip baptized him. And Philip, we're going to see in a few weeks, he baptized an Ethiopian in a, in a basically a puddle of mud, muddy water. It was water. He put him in, put him out. He, Philip, Philip knows his stuff. And he's going to, he's oh, this guy's legit. This guy was amazed. He was just so, you know, everybody popular about it. You know, I remember in, when I was a young youth minister in the 80s, all these celebrities became Christians. I remember when Bob Dylan became a Christian. I remember when Cat Stevens became a Christian. Anybody remember that besides me? Ah, oh, it was such a glorious day. All of you are old, by the way, if you remember that. None of you under the age of whatever is right, remember that. Oh, man, it was great. And everybody's so excited. And at least, Oh, there's celebrity Christians, and it's always that way. But I'll tell you what, man, that didn't last long. Celebrity Christianity never lasts long. We, we, we Christians are so easily impressed. And that's good. There are a lot of celebrities who become Christians. There are some, a lot of fine, outstanding, well-known people. I see their testimony. I read their stories. Some of them are, you know, I, I read about Chris Pratt, and, you know, when he's a Christian. I, and, I, and I've seen his stuff. I kind of believe it. I like it because I think if there was a movie about me, I think Chris Pratt would probably play me in that. You know, Mark Wahlberg is probably, I've seen his testimony. It looks good. His language is a little rough. But then again, when I'm driving, I'm not much different. A lot of athletes or celebrities just don't show them on the sidelines in the middle of a football game. That doesn't count. You understand that, right? We get so easily impressed when someone who's supposed to be well-known becomes a follower of Christ or is a follower of Christ. Christianity is not built on that. It's just built on everyday, average people who trust Jesus. And what we're going to see is that people of all walks of life can give the impression of following Christ, but never really follow it. You see, it's not just our words. It's our life that authenticates it. And that's the whole thing you see about Philip. His message is being authenticated by the way he lived that he would go to a person who was possessed by a demon, and because he had the power to do it, he healed them. Not because they paid him, not because they brought money to him, but because he could, and he loved them. It's the only reason someone has a power to heal. It's because they wear a white suit, have good hair, and get paid. They're a charlatan and a fraud. They ought to just go do it cause they can I mean, if you had the power to heal people, wouldn't you just go do it in the name of Jesus because you love them? And if you have the power to share Jesus with people, which all of you have, shouldn't you just go do it in the name of Jesus because you love them? And sometimes we all, in my ministry, there have been a, there have been a lot of Phillips in my life. There are a lot of people that, man, You think they're a Christian. And all of a sudden, something happens in life and it gets hard and you realize, they're probably not. Because at the end of the day, you know what Christians do? They live like Christians. They love like Christians. They care like Christians. Do you know one one of the last things Jesus said before he went to the cross in John 13? He said, this is how they will know that you belong to me. When you love one another. And by extension, then you go and you love them. And the beautiful thing about this story is you see Philip go to these people who were Samaritans, who nobody, why had anybody else gone there yet? Peter hadn't gone yet. John hadn't gone yet. None of the other apostles had gone yet. Philip went and he went and he loved them and he invested his life and he poured it into theirs. And they began to follow Jesus. That's the story of the book of Acts. You and I care about people and we love people, even if we don't really like them, even if they're sort of the people we're not supposed to care about, even if they're repulsive, they're enemies or whatever, but we look at them and say, you need Jesus. So I'm going to go give you Jesus. And ultimately, the thing we've got to realize is our life, our faith is looked at. Just like Philip, is it real? Is it authentic? Is it true? Because if it is, somewhere along the line, you begin to touch the lives of people for Christ. You begin to share with people. You begin to help people. And you begin to love people. And hopefully, as we'll see next week, you won't be like Simon. You don't want to be like that guy. Well, hopefully, I'll see you Sunday Well, I will actually preach Again, after taking a week or two off.